Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and you're very welcome to the Big Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, my guest today has been to the mountain and back in recent years in the world of politics. Regina Doherty was first elected at all in 2011, held her seat in 2016, and in that year she was appointed Chief Whip to the Fine Gael-dominated government. The following year, Leo Varadkar appointed her as Minister for Social Protection. Then, last year now, in February 2020, she lost her seat in the general election, but stayed on government in the caretaker role until the new administration came to power. Following that, she was one of the Taoiseach's 11 nominees to the Shannon, and she is now the leader of the Shannon. In September, she announced that she was switching constituencies and hopes to run in Dublin Fingal next time around rather than Mead East, where she had previously held her seat. Regina, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Mick. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, Last weekend, Regina, you were among a number of people, the the first, I think, certainly from the the government benches, to criticise elements of the Mother and Baby Home Commission report. Why did you come out at that stage criticising it? I suppose um, it's been on our agenda for a number of years. I know Charlie Flanagan was the minister that brought forward the commission, but um, I used to sit beside Catherine Sapone at the cabinet table for a number of years. And when she took over as Minister for Children, obviously she was very heavily impacted and emotionally involved um, with the situation and the investigation. And thereafter, obviously, making, you know, making sure that it was perfectly managed because of the hurt. And there's a number of other t- periods over the last number of years where leaks have really, really damaged and upset um, the survivors and indeed the children of the survivors. And I suppose the first thing that really, really annoyed me was the leaking of the report on Sunday, because I know how these things happen. I know and have been I'm one of the privileged few in the country that gets memos. And like, so, you know, who, who have access to this information. And I just thought it was such um, a disgusting um, thing to do. And the person that did it, like normally things get leaked for personal gain. There was no gain here involved, only massive hurt. Um, and the person that did that to me was a degenerate. Now, I know there's an investigation and all that kind of stuff going on. But my phone started um, kind of hopping last week. Uh, we, we we knew it was coming. There were women that I had been, you know, helping and, and talking to over the last number of years. Uh, up to high dough is probably the nicest way to put it. Um, and I saw... Uh, a, a gentleman tweet on Saturday evening, which prompted me then to say, I actually agreed. He did a big long thread and I agreed with a lot what was in the thread. 
Um, and so then when I was asked to go on the radio on Sunday morning, I decided, that, yeah, I, I, like, I think we need to be honest about this. And it's not a criticism of government. It's not really... Um, to discount the entire report, because obviously as a historical document, it's hugely comprehensive and it's, you know, it'll be hugely valuable in the year ahead. But the language in it, some of the assertions in it, um, some of the opinions that have been um, shared, I just think are wrong. Um, they're hurtful. I get the whole legalistic language around the port because it was judicially led. And I know, you know, that's not to be disrespectful for that, because that's what we obviously asked for. But it's certainly not what the women and the survivors were, were expecting. Um, and the language in the executive summary is, in my mind, so insulting to the lived experiences of those women that came forward and shared it with us. Um, and everything that we know that has happened, which is probably even not the real full horrors, um, because you know what Irish society is like. We protect and we close down and we, you know, there's family members involved and you do anything to protect them and not even them, but to protect their granny. You know, you know what I'm talking about, but... I was really hurt on their behalf um, and felt that it was time to come out and to, to be um, a voice for them because what we'd heard up until that point was welcome, welcome, welcome. And the whole emphasis last week um, was the fact that we were trying or there was a perception that we were trying to blame um, society and families, whereas the clear uh, culpability for me in my mind lies with the state and with the religious institutions and with the fawning relationship that they had um, with each other. And that's intergenerationally. That's not to blame any particular party because there was all of them um, had some aspect of control during the generations that this was involved. And so I just I just felt it needed to be said. Would you have acted in the same manner if you'd still been a member of government? Well, you see, I waited last week. Um, and I, like, I know you might think that this is easy for me to say now because the answer is yes, right? But I actually waited last week for somebody somewhere to say that this is my view and this is my feelings. And it wasn't, I wasn't being critical of government because government, I know we commissioned the report and maybe it's highly unusual, um, but it's not unique. I mean, you only have to go to look to Alan Shatter's um, challenge of a particular report that was commissioned by government to know that not anybody is infallible, not even in my view, the Pope, right? But we didn't challenge any parts of it, with the exception of Roger coming out on Sunday saying that he absolutely disagreed with the report and that he really believed that the adoptions were forced. Nobody had challenged a single finding in the report from any level of government perspective. And yet we'd apologised and that needed to be done and we took responsibility and that needed to be done. But nobody said, hang on a bloody second here. This is blatantly not true. To say that there was no evidence for coercion, no evidence for, you know, um, forced adoptions, no evidence of the women being treated any, any differently than they would have been treated in their home, that this was down to fathers and families without any comprehension of the grip that the church had from the pulpit on Irish society and Irish psyche, that there was a fear and a terror of, you know, reparations of anybody who didn't go along with exactly what was dictated to, not just from the church, but also from the state. Like none of that was mentioned. And it's not fair. And what's really hugely hurtful um, for somebody like me who doesn't, I, I have no concept of what it was like, how hurtful must it have been for the women and their children to say, to hear the message that we, we, we don't believe you and it doesn't matter. And it was your own family's fault. And sure, where were the fellas? And like that was, it was a lazy narrative and I just thought it was wrong. So, Okay, and... What should be done, Regina? Because there's a problem here to some extent, and that is in the way the way we have run the state 
certainly in recent decades, going back three or four decades, is issues arise. They're not dealt with in the usual format. We set up inquiries. We've done this time after time. Initially, it was tribunals. That was shown to be too expensive. So we invented this commission of investigation model, which to a large extent has been successful in a lot of instances. But if you have a scenario whereby a, a government questions or, or takes some action, as a result of a report coming out and people not agreeing with it, I'd suggest you'd have a lot of difficulty in getting someone to conduct these kind of reports thereafter if they thought they'd be subjected to that. So what should the government do and is that a problem? Well, I, I, I'm not, like, I, I take your point, right, but I'm not sure I 100% agree with it because we've had other commissions of inquiry where there have been questions arising from the commission's reports and the authors and the writers of those reports gave press conferences, they answered questions. They were able to not explain, but put into context what their views were. We haven't got um, the willingness to do that this time. And so we're left with far more questions than we got answers from. We're left with fingers pointing in directions that have genuinely left people scratch on their heads thinking, you know, like it's not a big step for me to to appreciate why there are women in this country who were direct uh, subjects of mother and baby homes and county homes, wondering if the reason that the commission pointed its fingers in certain ways was to try and, you know, ameliorate the state from any um, culpability or to, to, you know, to lessen the financial burden on the um, the, the mother, uh, sorry, the religious institutions. Now, I don't believe that for a moment. But what I can't figure out is why they did what they did when the body of evidence that was presented to them, the brave 550 plus women that came forward, and you and I know that there's thousands of others who didn't, but the brave women who came forward and told their stories, first in, in some instances they were told their memories were wrong, second of all they were told that they weren't really, you know, like to question the lived experiences and then to actually point fingers in areas that were not under... I suppose, review. We all know that the father scarpered in most cases, but like in some that they didn't. And we all know that families didn't keep their women at home because if they did, we wouldn't have had the amount of thousands of women that went through them. But we all know that the society wasn't solely to blame for that, that the society had been crafted by the state's policies, which were colluded with by the church's policies and the dictation back. Like, But there was none of that context. And so, sorry, you asked me the question, what needs to be done? First of all, because there's such disappointment and hurt in, in the content of the commission, I really believe that we need another summary alongside the executive summary of one of the women or one of their representatives to write a nuanced, um, emotionally led um, recount of what happened, uh, even one person to be a lived experience. And then every single lady that came forward and gave witness and testimony should be transcribed verbatim because I don't believe Noelle is going to be the only lady that's going to have questions um, of the evidence that was in the report. Noelle um, Brown. Yeah, when she got her, her transcripts her transcripts back last week. But for anybody that did come forward and give uh, testimony, I believe that they should be transcribed verbatim and laid alongside in our archives with the Commission's report so that history will be able to see the nuance. And what about the members of the Commission? Should they make themselves available to an Oireachtas committee or something? Well, I think they have been asked, but I'm I'm told that they're not willing to, and that's fine. You know, I mean, it just... 
it's not a witch hunt either. Like they were asked to do a body of work and they produced uh, a very, very comprehensive and albeit a, a hugely valuable document. And it's awful because it's probably only a small part of it that people will disagree with. And uh, more so, it's probably the opinion and, you know, the finger pointing that people disagree with. And it is at odds with the evidence that was given by the women. But what needs to me um, in the annals of our history is, is that the context of the real lived experience needs to be laid alongside um, this report, this historical report, um, and absolutely the commitments that we've given. First of all, the 22 commitments, and albeit that they're great, they need a timeline. This, you know, they, they, women don't expect a new hard. Brendan O'Connor opened his programme on Saturday with the expectation that government were going to screw up the redress scheme again because we've had difficulties in the past. That's an awful expectation to have, and we absolutely need to make sure that we don't, um, that we need to make sure uh, that all of the commitments have a timeline so that the women can be reassured that we're just, there's a real seriousness and a determination um, by Roderick O'Gorman. And I really do believe there is. Uh, and for me, the most important one, um, I think, is the commitment to excavation, to DNA tracing and to a fitting um, tribute and memorial and burial to the lives that we so undignified um, gave uh, uh, burials to in the past. And that, I use that word very loosely because... In lots of cases, it wasn't. Yeah, it's, there, there, there's a lot of dispute over that. And yeah, that is fair enough. And we, we'll just have to see where that goes. Turning to your own career, Regina, you lost your seat in the last election. I did. Um, f- coming from uh, the, the the cabinet table, effectively, which is, I suppose, in some ways, politically a, a, a huge drop. Were you fearful or did it come as a, a shock to you to lose it? I think... I, you probably knew beforehand, to be honest with you. Like, I'm in a three-seater. Um, it's There's two Fine Gaels, uh, in a three-seater. There's very, very few of them. I think I was probably the only one. At the, there was a couple at the time, and I think everybody lost. The only surprise was in Rathdown. Um, they gained uh, the two Fine Gael seats because of really, really good uh, vote management. First of all, we didn't have good vote management. That's probably very clear to say. Um, you had two ambitious people uh, in a constituency. There wasn't much of a team. That was yourself, yourself and Helen McIntyre. Yeah, yeah, the current uh, Minister for Justice. Uh, but I don't, like, that's not to shirk my own responsibility. I think the biggest mistake I made uh, was that when I asked Leo to be the Minister for Social Protection, and he was very good enough and kind enough to allow me to do it, there were things there that I really, really wanted to do. And I threw my heart and my soul 150% into it and probably most likely to the detriment of what you know gets us re-elected, which is the bread and butter constituency business. Um, and so that's my own fault. So now I've no regrets, honest to God, like I don't. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the four years that I was um, Minister for Social Protection and genuinely felt that we got some good stuff done. So Did I see immediately after that you made some comment to the effect of at that stage, you thought, well, that was it, I'm done with politics. Did you, initially, were, 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 or was that just a kind of a shock reaction? No, it, it wasn't, right? And because the reason, because it wasn't really a shock, because I kind of thought, and then as the campaign was, you know, grew and Sinn Féin's, you know, both rose much higher than maybe anybody foresaw, uh, kind of knew that the writing was on the wall. Um, I'm 50 next week. Um, I kind of thought, yeah, I thought that, you know, if you were going to do something else, um, that now is the time before you get too old for people to consider you to be a viable um, new employee. And I kind of thought that this was, you know, to, to be honest with you, my mind at the time, I never thought about moving constituency. My mind at the time was that it would be really difficult to win two Fine Gael seats 
again in a three-seater, particularly with the way um, politics is as polarised as it is. And Sinn Féin, you know, to their credit, have done an enormous job of winning and maintaining a particular level of support. I kind of knew that I'm not going to be able to recapture this seat. It's not that you'll, you know, have a, a period out and then a period back. So when Tom Curran rang and asked me to run for the Shannon, I kind of felt that, you know, it would be depriving somebody else that would have an opportunity. Um, that feels like a lifetime ago now, to be honest with you. So then COVID happened. Um, And then the next couple of months between February and the end of June, she just, it felt like a whole lifetime wrapped into a couple of months with everything that needed to be done. And and we did it and it was grand. But by then, I kind of was mourning the loss of, Jesus, maybe I shouldn't have made the decision so quickly. Um, And I had started a course in DCU. I'd started, I decided to kind of, you know, leave behind IT, leave behind politics, do something mad and completely different. And I had started um, a micro-credential course in fintech and innovation technology, just something completely different and new. But sure, I think I'd only started it about a week and a half and then the first COVID cabinet committee um, took place. And sure, thereafter, we were working 15-hour days, so... That had to be shelved. And did you seek the did you seek the nomination for the Shannon then? I went and I spoke to the, the to then Taoiseach to say that like I know I didn't really have any right to ask to be considered, but that I did and do genuinely feel um, a great grow for public representation. And I had had months Mick of doing clinics over Twitter, um, over Facebook for helping people to get onto PUPs and to access TWSS supports, you know, all of that stuff. Normal people just not being able to get over a wall of what they saw as red tape. And like the, the buzz you get when you help somebody just get something that they're entitled to is probably the real reason that most people get involved in politics. I mean, no people will tell you they have lofty goals to do this and that, you know, but it's just helping normal people in your community is probably what most people start off with. And that just really rekindled my love for public service. And it was then I decided that I'd, how, how would I do it? Well, how would I ask, um, having turned it down already and not run? Um, and so I I got a card and I wrote a card and I asked him to say that um, I know I didn't have any right to ask to be considered, but that if he did form a government and he was lucky enough with it, uh, Michal, that he, who I knew was going to be the Taoiseach, to have nominations, that if he would consider me, I'd be grateful. So he did and I'm here. He didn't dare you. And it's interesting you say that thing about the, in a negative fashion, it's called the parish pump work, but that, that element of public service at the ground level, to put it that way. Because a lot of people would have perception that that is something that, as you say, people get a buzz with starting out and that at some point it becomes just a means to an end. And then somebody like you, for instance, who, who make it to the cabinet, and that, that's the kind of system we have here, perhaps more than in other jurisdictions where the aim is, where you can really make a difference if you make it into the cabinet. But I would have thought that somebody who has done that and, and, and been able to make a contribution at that level like yourself, that that element of the, 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 the ground level work is not something that you'd relish going back to. But you're saying that it, during that period, it was something that you, you still got a buzz from. Yeah, well, you see, I suppose there was so much distress and panic. Like literally, I recall um, the first cabinet meeting and I, I think we thought we had kind of, I won't say months, but definitely weeks before things accelerated. And that first cabinet meeting was when we devised the policy on illness benefit and we had to make changes and you couldn't because we didn't, you know, you couldn't pass legislation. So we had to find ways to remove the waiting days. We had to find ways to increase the, like, and we did that on a Monday. That meeting happened on a Monday. And um, by Friday, Leo was announcing 
you know, that we were literally going to have to be shutting down the country. And so we had to scramble really fast to try and devise a policy access um, to job seekers. And we knew job seekers at 200 and, you know, 11 years or whatever it was at the time wasn't going to cut it. It wasn't going to stop and uh, be sustainable for people. We also knew that we couldn't have hundreds of thousands of people arriving at Intrio offices because we couldn't have them in confined spaces or in queue. So like there was so much to think about and we we landed that on everybody, how to do it in the most unusual ways of, you know, sending in post, logging on, stuff that we'd never been allowed to do before. Um, and it caused huge concern and panic for people. And people were uh, applying on paper and they were applying online and they were applying by phone. And then they were given out because the following week they didn't get any money. And there was a huge amount of distress. Um, and as anybody knows, if you live kind of week to week or month to month, if you don't have the buffer in your bank account or your post office account, well, then that level of anxiety that you live through or don't live through goes through the roof. And so I literally had my phone hopping off me, um, text messages, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp. Like there was, and you know, there's so many ways people can communicate with you now at this stage. Like, and my DMs are open on my Twitter. And so I literally had hundreds of people. And then I had co- colleagues in my own parliamentary party and across the spectrum from Fianna Fáil and from other parties coming to me saying, Regina, I have this fellow, I have that woman, this family, you know. So I literally had to set up clinics from my sitting room where I'm sitting right now um, and spend hours every single day. And I'd set up a team in, in the department um, so that I'd be able to go and say PRS number, P- PBS number one two three four five six seven B. They applied last Tuesday in Cork. I need to know the status of it. And literally, the messages were going back and forward. And then I was getting the stories of particularly women um, who were trying desperately to work from home, who it wasn't cutting for their um, employees, and their employees were just sacking them. And because I was Minister for Employment Affairs, people were coming to me those things. And our WRC wasn't sitting, and like there was all of that stress. Uh, was enormous. But when you helped people, and yet once we did, and the people in the Department of uh, Social Protection are incredible, I have to be honest with you, and most of them working from home, but the level of service they gave was 200%. Um, we, we did manage to help people and it did settle down. Um, and then the queries about backdated payments, were, you know, so it was constant. Um, and then we were trying to tweak things and we were trying to get IT systems to work because everything was done on a kind of an ad hoc. So like the, the work... The work wasn't a small amount of work. It was enormous, like it wasn't short of anything. But I think the probably most rewarding bit of it was the helping people, the setting people up, the giving them the reassurances. And you'd go to bed knackered in the evening time, but you know you'd had looked after, you know, the couple of hundred people that have come to you through the various means that day. And that gives, that feels good. And so then that was kind of like, am I really ready to give all that up? I know it'll be a huge battle to try and win a seat, but am I really ready to give that back up? I love this job. You know, it... it it thrills me. That's the wrong way to put it, but you know what I mean. So, and that's why I decided yeah. that I'd, I'd ask. Stick at it. Okay. Um, no, it's interesting you say that because some people, Regina, as I'm sure you're aware, and I'm sure this to you, <laughs> some people have this uh, image these days of Fine Gael that basically they're only interested in the better off. And quite obviously, most of the people you've been, you would have been dealing with in that respect, as we know, during the pandemic, it's those much further down the socioeconomic ladder who've been hit far worse. That brings me to this matter. And that was a letter you wrote to the Irish Times last year. And I just say I was very taken by it because sometimes you come across letters like this and it leaps off the page. Just point out to listeners, this was a letter in response to a column by Una Mullally, who's a columnist at the Irish Times, a very well 
red columnist and somebody who has some very um, views that are very much, I think, chime with definitely with some people and not with others, perhaps, which is a good sign in the columnist. Anyway, Una wrote about Fine Gael and about her view of them and she put them very much in terms, I suppose you could say, nearly in the same boat as the Conservatives in the UK. You responded with this letter. I'm just taking a couple of paragraphs out of it just to give people a flavour of it. And you, the following was, I really would like to live on Una Mullally's planet where everyone and everything is reduced to a white hat or black hat, goodies and baddies and simple answers. Of course, in her view, Fine Gael are the baddies. Ideologically cruel, our entire focus is hell-bent on targeting the welfare class. And then in brackets, her words, I don't know any Irish politician who uses such an insulting phrase. They say, of course, on planet Earth, the reality is different. I should know I was the Fine Gael minister who introduced the pandemic payment. And just one other aspect down towards the end, because I have to say it, it did leap off the page. But anyway, he said, I'm sure these facts won't dim your columnist's obsession with painting Fine Gael as the party of the privilege and private schooling. As someone who was born in Dublin's north side, grew up in a council house and never went to a boarding school, I take particular offence at such a cartoon portrayal. I can tell you that the Fine Gael party is full of very ordinary people. What unites us is not our school ties or postcodes, but our passion for everybody in Ireland to get the help and support to better lives and on it goes in that vein. Regina, I'd have to say, despite that, the perception that Una Mullally referred to there is most definitely out there among a large cohort of the electors. That's why it needs to be challenged, Mick, because it's wrong. And like, it's so, it's so easy and it's so lazy to say that everybody in Fine Gael went to a private school, that everybody in Fine Gael had third level education or came from a rich farming background. And, and you see, the problem is, is that the reality is that it's, it's not true. And so if you don't challenge a lazy narrative, and as you know, in the world of disinformation that we're all uh, living in at the moment, if you don't challenge it, the, thing that gets said the most becomes the mantra and it becomes um, reality. And it isn't reality. The vast majority of people in Fine Gael are from normal backgrounds. I think we've started this programme off talking about the fact that I grew up in North County Dublin. My father is from Clarne in the Boot Inn. Uh, my mother is from Finglas. Both of them worked every single day in their life to ensure. And I was an only child till I was 11 uh, and nearly 12 when my brother was born. They worked every day. My dad in DSB as a driver and my mother in a school canteen in Blanchardstown to make sure that we didn't go without. But I know they did go without. Now, that's the reality for me. I didn't have the privilege of a third level um, education when I was 18. OK, I've gone back since and I've, I've done it then, but it's only because I worked and I'd be able to, you know. So not everybody in Fine Gael is this stereotyped, you know, school going, tie wearing um, club that Una Mullally and others like her uh, would have you believe. The vast majority of the farmers that are in Finnegan well, Park stop you there. don't have huge wealth and they bloody will have to work hard for the small holdings that they have uh, or for the small um, dairy herd that they have. So, like, these are normal people okay. who work hard for a living and in the main are probably the people that actually give the most and get nothing back from the state, to be fair. But anyway, that's another day's work. So Yeah, and, and, and that's fair enough. However, I, I, there's another element to it, and that is... Um, the last election, for instance. Now, I think there's a, a I've heard someone re- referencing to it. You know, this book comes out after every election, How Ireland Votes. I think it's been delayed this time because of the pandemic. Yeah. But as I understand it, that will show research that suggests that largely in the last election, people voted to a large extent according to income and whether or not they felt they were better or worse off 
in the previous year or so under the current government. And to some extent, that is along socioeconomic lines. Those that were better off perhaps did all right. Those who, who weren't didn't. And that would certainly feed into a narrative that Fine Gael's base, those to whom they, they, they would be most wedded, would be those who, the, the better off section of society. Well, I, I'm not sure I agree. And I obviously I will look forward to reading the report when it does come out. But I think you and I both know that the swing voters, those people who make up their minds in the last couple of weeks are the people who decide what shape a government is. And the vast majority of those swing voters moved to Sinn Féin because of an enormous momentum that built up around not just one issue, but a number of issues. And yes, of course, there was dissatisfaction uh, with Fine Gael at the time. Nothing was perfect, but an awful lot had been achieved. And I'll have to be honest with you, we're not very good at telling you, even though we get labelled with, you know, the whole spin thing. We're not very good at telling you of all of the good things that we've done, because even though it's nearly a year later since the election, I'm still the person that apparently is getting blamed uh, for cutting people's pension, even though I increased it three times for the three years that I was there. I'm the person that's apparently being blamed for people having to work uh, for below minimum wage because I introduced community employment. And yet I was 12 when community employment, you know, so these narratives, you know, exist in urban legends and they suddenly grow arms and legs. Whereas I would have to tell you, Mick, there's not probably very many people that would be able to rhyme off the fact that I banned zero hour contracts. And the first person that brought the minimum wage to the second highest level in the European Union. Um, I introduced job seekers benefit for the self-employed. Every single taxi man, hairdresser, plumber, you know, all of those people who lost their jobs last March that were self-employed. If I hadn't have brought in that legislation the year before, not one of them would have got the PUP. And imagine the kind of hole we would have been in then. You know what I mean? I introduced paid parental leave. There was a load of stuff that I got uh, done for the couple of years that I was there. Does anybody know that? No, but everybody knows that I cut the pension even though I didn't. You know what I mean? So okay, I'm just okay. saying... Well, one other element, and, and probably the biggest issue at the time, and probably in terms of bread and butter issues, probably the biggest issue in general is housing. And yet... Fine Gael have been the one constant over the last 10 years when the housing crisis has reached crisis point and still is there. Um, and again, in terms of housing, and I don't just mean homelessness in terms of people in emergency accommodation or those rough sleeping, but people who can't literally afford to buy a house, particularly the younger generation. Again, they are the ones who will have suffered most under nine years of Fine Gael governments um, as a result. But again, and I, I don't mean to be disrespectful to you, you know, first of all, for the first five years, there wasn't a single penny to, you know, to spend and invest in doing anything because every morsel of time for the people, God love them, who were at that cabinet and some of them suffered because of it too, was trying to cut a cloth based on the amount of money that they had left, which wasn't determined uh, by a growing economy. It was determined by an absolutely savaged economy based on a massive recession because of mismanagement. It doesn't matter why it happened, right? But you know that you had departments of social welfare, um, even though the numbers in unemployment went through the roof between the years of 2008 and 2015, and the um, overall budget did have to increase. Four billion euros had to be taken off the most vulnerable in this country uh, because of the, the, the state of the economy. There was no money to spend uh, building houses. And we also know our local authorities had been disincentivized probably for the previous 20 years to not bother building anymore, to sell it to the, the private market. When Owen Murphy, and God bless him, worked the rounds of the clock 
to build the building blocks for what we have. And I know it's been interrupted by COVID. When he started rebuilding Ireland, which Simon Coveney had started it the year before he took over, it was never going to work fast enough to live up to people's expectations. But it will work. Now, OK, if it hadn't been interrupted by COVID, we might be seeing the benefits of more houses last year and this year. And obviously construction has been damaged seriously again because of this loss of access to sites and stuff like that. But the money is now there. But the reason the money is there and the plans are good um, is because we had a jobs-led economy recovery uh, and growth that was probably unprecedented and never seen before in Ireland, which were, we were just bloody lucky. Now, I know there's people that will tell you that we planned it that way to a certain extent, some of the policies were, but we did get lucky. And now we have the money to be able to spend. And yes, some of the policies still aren't ready. Um, but you were never going to fix every ill from 2016 after that ne- that election, where we lost massive numbers of seats again, as you know, because people weren't satisfied with the previous five years. Um, it was only starting then. That's only a short five years ago. So we went from building no houses to at least to 2020 when we were building near 25,000. Now, that's a massive increase for an industry that was on its knees and didn't have any, um, you know, workers, yeah. let alone any investment I, in it. So... I think some people might dispute the figures in terms of building 25,000, but there certainly no one became available. But I, I, I take your point. There, there, there was a narrative there, and that is disputed and continue, continue to be disputed. But in more general terms, Regina, what the election does suggest is that the country appears to be moving t- towards a traditional left, right, and <laughs> as people would probably say, right of centre, left of centre, because I don't, I don't think either are any extreme model now. Do you think that's a positive thing? I think if it was real, it would be a positive thing. But you see, I don't think it is real. So I think, like, you know, there are a lot of centrist parties, what used to be the two traditional parties, um, and we would be classified as centre-right. Fianna Fáil would have classified themselves as centre-left. Do you know what? They're not. Both of them are centrist parties, and that's the end of it, because there is very little difference if you get outside of the nuance of the policies and the objections that they have for the society and the country and the economy that we live in. What you have um, is a really false narrative of a party that's pretending to be on the left and they're not. Uh, and so our Are you real left, and I'm talking about Sinn Féin, um, now that's just populism and that's fine and maybe that's what will get them into power and then we'll really see what their two colours are. Well, there's the such a thing as left populism. The are the people yeah. before profit, our solidarity, um, to a certain extent, you know, the Labour Party and some of our very, very left-leaning uh, independents, they have nothing in common with Sinn Féin policy. And so, like, I, I will be very interested. I have no doubt. Well, uh, to be fair now, the, the likes of the Labour Party, for instance, Social Democrats would describe themselves as left. And yeah. I don't think many people would dispute that. No. And Sinn Féin w- would suggest themselves, and I think others observing would suggest, to put it this way, perhaps, they're at least as left as that, if not more so, and, and that they are the leading party if there is to be that traditional ideological divide. I don't agree with that. And I tell you, like, and my opinion probably doesn't stand for much, but I have no doubt that in the next number of years, um, and probably sooner maybe than a lot of us ex- expect, Sinn Féin will be in government. And then we'll get to see the real true colours um, of their policies. And the, the, the phrase, I think it was Rory Quinn um, or Pat Rabbit, I can't remember which one of them said, that we uh, all election in poetry and we govern in prose. Well, it'll be very, very interesting to see what the colour of Sinn Féin's prose is. Um, if and when they do get in because their track record in local government for the councils that they do have and I'm not even going to go near Northern Ireland because it's a whole different set of structures and I think everybody knows that but their track record in local government is appalling and so if that's anything to instil inspiration for people as to how they'll act on a national level 
Um, it doesn't really. But look, you know what? I've no doubt it will come. I've no doubt that there is a real disillusionment in Irish politics. Um, and unless something drastically changes over the next number of years, I think Sinn Féin will get their opportunity to be in power and we'll see what, you know, what the colour of their okay. policies are then. Uh, finally, Regina, just in terms of the old chestnut, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, will they merge? Do you see them merging no. within your term of politics and hopefully you have a long term coming. I don't. Thank you very much. I don't. Um, and it's not because, you know, there are incredibly decent people in Fianna Fáil um, and the more time you spend with people, the more you know how decent they are. Um, but what's really weird and it's deep rooted and ingrained is that even though we are in a cooperation and a coalition with each other, it takes the slightest little thing for that hundred year old um, division oh and rivalry to come straight back up and you know like I grew up in a household where Fianna Fáil were bad Fianna Gael were good I know others who grew up in the Fianna Fáil good household you know my, I married into a Fianna Fáil household and they're funny took me years to convert them it doesn't take an awful lot um, for that vitriol guttural um, emotional response to come but it's, back it's, it's, it's based on it's based on a, nonsense a, a, a dispute a hundred years yeah, ago that lasted for a very very brief Period. Yeah, honestly, God, you're, you're dead right. It is based on nonsense, but it's instinctful um, in us. I don't know whether my mother or father, you know, droned me on it when I was a kid, but it's, and it's not just unique to me, it's all of us. Um, and it's not even the older generations. Like the, my daddy is 86 this year, um, and I'm a lot younger than he is. And I, maybe I would be more tolerant, but there is a level where you kind of think, hold on, I'm bloody, you know, so. Um, I think, and I also don't think it would be healthy for Irish politics either, to be very honest with you, because um, I think it's good to have choice. I think what will happen in the next number of years is that the old traditional of big party and smaller party going into coalition are long gone. We've seen it happen right across Europe uh, with multiple party uh, coalitions. And I actually think that's much healthier. What we have to manage in Ireland is to develop the relationships to allow that to be sustainable. Because I think, and it's, you can see it in other European countries too, in the advent of the Italian government just fall in the last number of weeks, um, when when parties and coalitions stay in their own silos and don't cross-party develop relations, well, then that doesn't ever have uh, an opportunity to give you longevity. I think if we can cross that Rubicon, then I think we can have a really successful coalitions going forward in the, con you know, in, in for my kids and your kids and their grandkids and stuff in the future. Um, but I think it is possible for us to have smaller parties and more of them and more balance. Um, and I think we'd get a better outcome for the country if... We could just cooperate with each other, so we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll yeah. see how that goes. Regina Darley, thank you very much for joining us thank you very today. Much. That's it, folks. Uh, thank you for listening. I want to thank JJ Vernon, our engineer. You can get the podcast on the usual platforms, or please give me a shout anytime about what you think about it at mick.clifford@examiner.ie or on Twitter at, at @mickcliff. See you soon. Mm -hmm.